A subscription to the China Africa Project's email newsletter is like getting a daily China Africa intelligence briefing delivered straight to your inbox every weekday at 6 a.m. Washington time. You'll get an in-depth review of everything going on in politics, trade, tech, culture, and more. And we don't just focus only on Africa, but also the Middle East and what China's doing throughout the Global South. Try it out free for 30 days. See if you like it. After that, subscriptions are just $7 a month for teachers and students and $15 a month for everyone else. Sign up today at ChinaAfricaProject.com slash subscribe. Once again, that's ChinaAfricaProject.com slash subscribe. The China in Africa podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Africa-China Reporting Project at Witts University in Johannesburg. The ACRP aims to improve the quality of reporting on Africa-China relations through reporting grants, workshops, and other opportunities for journalists. More information at africachinareporting.co.za and our dedicated training website at africachinatraining.com. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast, a proud member of the Seneca Network from SubChina. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden, the senior China-Africa researcher at the South African Institute of International Affairs in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Kobus, one of the themes of maybe the past two weeks, but we could probably say the past two years, certainly, is this chasm between public sentiment in the civil society towards China and what governing elites and how they view China. And what we've seen in the past few weeks, just in the coverage that you and I do every day on our website and in our newsletter, especially out of places like the Democratic Republic of Congo, where one day after another, there's just a continuous stream of these videos that are popping up showing the maltreatment of Congolese workers and Congolese miners by Chinese managers. We're seeing instances of environmental abuse. Uh, Today, there was a story about how Chinese mining companies in the Democratic Republic of Congo are violating uh, their, their permits, and 205 different Congolese NGOs have appealed to the prime minister to withdraw that license. And there's this real mounting frustration, not just in the Congo. We have seen it in Zambia. We've seen it in Kenya, lots in Nigeria this year and last year. Of course, last year, in the aftermath of the Guangzhou incidents, where hundreds, dozens, not quite sure how many black and African residents were evicted from their hotels and their homes in Guangzhou because of a crackdown on COVID-19 restrictions. That then spurred enormous backlash online. But yet, you would never know that from the leadership. And this was very interesting because just this week, and this is a story we covered a lot today, is the presidential elections in Zambia. And unlike previous years, where China was a prominent issue in the presidential campaigns, who can forget back in the early 2000s, Michael Sada, he rose to power on a populist anti-Chinese platform. Of course, when he became president, what did he do on his first trip overseas? He went to Beijing. That there shows what's happening. But Right now, in the presidential campaign that's going on today, as we record, by the time you listen to this, you'll probably know who the winner is. China was not an issue at all. And that's very interesting because in Zambia, over the past 12, 14, 15 months, been a lot of controversy over the presence of Chinese residents, Chinese migrants, and the question of Chinese debt. Now, that being said, there's a flip side to this because you look at social media, you look at the news media, and you think, wow, everybody hates China in Africa. But then you look at the data, and it tells you a totally different story. The most reliable metric that people have on public opinion in Africa is done by an agency called Afrobarometer. And every four or five years, they do a survey on perspectives about the Chinese, the U.S., and various foreign powers. 2019-2020 was the last one, came out last fall. Here's some of the findings. 63% across the 18 countries, so 63% of the people across the 18 countries they surveyed said China is either somewhat or positive influence in their country. That's kind of polling speak for the fact that it's, you know, generally they have a positive view of the Chinese in the country. 63%. China was rated second behind only the United States as a development model. And in the rating of external influencers, 
that is, the countries outside of Africa that have the most economic and political influence in Africa, China was ranked number one with a 59% approval rating and only a 15% negative rating, ahead of the United States with a 58% positive rating and a 13% negative rating. Very similar story up in the Middle East as well and in North Africa. Arab Barometer, a different agency, they did a similar survey across Middle Eastern and North African countries, and this is their quote, the survey results make clear that Arab publics prefer China. China is viewed favorably by half or more in three countries, Algeria, Morocco, and Tunisia, while a third or more have a positive view in Lebanon, Jordan, and Libya. By comparison, fewer than a third have a favorable view of the U.S. in all six countries that they surveyed in that group, ranging from a high of just 28% in Morocco to a low of 14% in Libya. So, Cobus, a very complicated picture. To be honest with you, when I look at these kinds of stories about public perceptions, I have no idea what's up and what's down, because you see one thing on social media and in the press, and you see another thing in the data. Yeah, it's it's very complicated. Um, with it comes comes a, a, you know s several even more complicating kind of factors, including the fact that there is constant kind of you know kind of back and forth propaganda wars kind of going on between China and and different Western countries. Um, you know, so so kind of you know including both kind of the the deployment of of, kind of cherry pick information and actual active disinformation coming from both sides um you know so so that's that's one complicating factor the other compli complicating factor is is you know to which extent one can take this kind of poll data and then translate it or read it as as an expression of popular popular sentiment you know that that itself has a, there's a whole lot of kind of complicated polling science you know around that issue, um, and that it, it is a it is a controversial issue, um, particularly in in um, developing countries where you know kind of where frequently people you know people are not easy to reach or the people who who are reachable through email or phone or so on might you know kind of sit in in a particular kind of strata of the society and you know doesn't necessarily represent broad based opinion and so forth. There's a billion of these of these kind of caveats to, to take into account. So so it's a really complicated situation. I'm so glad that you brought up the questions about polling because it's not just in developing countries, but it's also in advanced economies as well. Polling has been wrong repeatedly in the United States. It messed up in Israel in their, in their past elections. UK polling has been off. So the, the science of polling is highly questionable. And the fact that, as you pointed out, in developing countries, it's even more difficult. So let's get a perspective from Washington on this. There was an article that crossed our radar. A Global South leaders are ignoring anti-China sentiment at their peril. It was written by Charles Dunst, who is an associate with Eurasia Group's Global Macro Practice and also a visiting scholar at the East-West Center in Washington. And he's also a contributing editor, uh, Kobus, you're going to like this, at Francis Fukuyama's new magazine, American Purpose. <laughs> Francis Fukuyama, of course, of end of history fame. So uh, that's pretty exciting. A very good morning to you, Charles. Thank you so much for joining us. Of course. Thank you guys for having me. It's great to have you on the show. You were... Uh, quite kind of decided about what, what you think the situation is. And you said there's a growing trend across a diverse swath of develop of the developing world from Asia to Africa and beyond, a growing dangerous divergence between public and governmental sentiment on China. Go ahead and make your case. Sure. So I think off the bat, one thing I would say is I don't mean to kind of suggest that every country is where, where China is active is experiencing anti-Chinese sentiment. I mean, that's that's certainly not the case. But I think when you do look at more recent polling, and I think even, even more anecdotal data, and even when I've done some, in my former life, I was a, tr a traditional journalist. So even I, I follow up and do some kind of reporting with folks I know in Pakistan or Cambodia, etc. You do kind of hear this constant frustration of, look, our government's are very close with China for kind of reasons of development, uh, security alliances, etc. Whereas the publics, I think, particularly in, I mean, I, I like those two examples of pa Pakistan and Cambodia, mostly because I used to live in Cambodia. But you look at those two, and I think they're very helpful because those two are considered Cambodia, are, are considered, I guess, China's arguably top two partners, kind of leading partners in, in Southeast and South Asia, for sure. 
And yet, when you actually talk to kind of the average person, I think the opinion on China is mixed, if not negative. Um, that is certainly the case in Cambodia. I mean, I can say there's a real frustration. And I think what I would clarify here is what's really interesting is it's not anti kind of China sentiment as much as it is frustration with the Chinese people who are present in the country who come to represent China, unfortunately. So, I mean, I think in Cambodia, it's, it's a very helpful example. You have a country that is really kind of obviously low low rule of law, kind of a limited ability to kind of enforce regulations and laws, et cetera, essentially. So when kind of the this vast sum of Chinese money has come in, along with kind of of course, Chinese companies and Chinese workers, there's way kind of there's a, a la- significant lack of regulation of them, which I'm sure you guys are, are familiar, but it's led to kind of that, that creation of this Chinese gambling city in, in Sihanoukville that's now kind of dissipated because of COVID. But I guess when I was last there in 2019, it was really stunning. I mean, it was a half built city um, kind of constructed somewhat illicitly um, there the stories of kind of of criminality ranging I think from from prostitution to murder that are tied to kind of Chinese gangs has skyrocketed and you talk to Cambodians and like we we can't afford to live here anymore they've been priced out um, and there's there is this feeling of and this is almost exactly quoting um, a, a friend of mine who was a, a vendor in Phnom Penh he said look, the Americans, the British, the Australians, whatever, you guys come here, you get drunk, you might be a little dumb, but at least you spend money in our businesses. And the, 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 the comparison was the Chinese do all of those things, don't spend money at, their, at our businesses, and generally bring along kind of more criminality attached to kind of BRI projects and whatnot. So my argument here is that if you have that divergence in Pakistan and Cambodia, which are, again, kind of two of China's closest partners in, in the world, it's not hard to see kind of how that's going to be the case elsewhere. And I think the Philippines is a very strong example of this, where Duterte is obviously kind of quite pro-China and is certainly more pro-China than his population is. I mean, any of the party, any of the folks running to replace him next year are kind of certainly more anti-China or China skeptical than he is. So my my general argument is I think China has very much succeeded in some form of elite capture on this front. Um, That has been very helpful for them to get these developing countries on board. I mean, there's no question where underdevelopment and poverty are the most pressing issues. Countries and leaders can't really wait for for the Western aid that might or may not come, that may be attached to kind of human rights strings, um, and, and that is generally comes with more red tape attached than than the Chinese money that kind of is uh, has a propensity to flow in quite quickly if if in an unregulated capacity. So it's a very mixed picture, I think, as you were saying before. But I, I am concerned to see the gap growing. Um, I think Pakistan is, again, a very helpful example. You've already seen kind of this, you've already seen anti-China violence bubble over in uh, in Vietnam, I want to say five or six years ago. And the Vietnamese government's kind of a whole, that's a whole separate category of... of that, that's like talking yeah. about Mexico-US relations. You know, I mean, there's deep totally, history totally, totally. there that, that makes cloud that 100%. makes it much more cloudy. Uh, Kobus, what's your take on the argument here? Well, yeah, on, on that point, particularly, um, you know, it, 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 it seems to me that, that the, you know, recently, a few, a few weeks ago, we spoke with Nargis Casanova from Harvard about Central Asia, China um, relations. And, and during that discussion, we also came to, to a kind of very kind of similar point, which was that countries with like historical border relations with China or countries who've just lived physically close to China kind of for a long time have tend to have a kind of a, a, a a different relationship with China than, than countries that are far away, like in Africa. So I was wondering kind of how you draw that line, um, you know, because, because you know, so some, some of the major kind of examples that you mentioned, like the Philippines, for example, are in active dispute with China around issues like the South, the South China Sea. Um, so, it, like, do, do you see similar kind of anti-Chinese trends in countries that don't have the, these kind of live, live kind of hot-button issues kind of currently simmering? Or do you, do you see kind of similar trends uh, close close up to China and far away? 
Sure. No, that's a really interesting point. I think I would agree that countries kind of close to China do generally kind of have more difficult relationships with China. I mean, I think my, my real background is Southeast Asia. I used to live there, and you can certainly see it kind of across that region, of course. I mean, Vietnam, Philippines, Malaysia. Um, but it's interesting. I mean, again, Cambodia is an interesting example because they have no – there is no South China Sea dispute, with China. And, and yet, I think the public relations are still a little bit strained. And even when you jump kind of further afield, I mean, you have pluralities of Turks that are that have a negative view of China, which is kind of fascinating. And I'm not, I think that probably relates to kind of China being seen as, uh, as irreligious as anti Islam. And I, I obviously, I think the, the Uyghur persecution certainly does not help that. But I, I wonder, I think you've certainly seen anecdotally, obviously, kind of you've seen anti-Chinese violence in in Argentina. You've seen anti-Chinese violence in Zimbabwe and in Zambia. And I think it's not hard to see how particularly post-COVID or kind of, I guess, mid-COVID, um, there has been a real frustration, I think, around the world. I mean, I think what was really fascinating for me, at least, was when kind of the these Thailand protests started last year, and it was not obviously not at all China related, but the I think there was all these kind of Chinese Twitter bots that came down on the side of the government and saying you shouldn't be protesting against the king, you shouldn't be protesting against the prime minister, whatever, um, and that promptly kind of organized a bunch of Thai kind of responses that garnered coverage in Reuters and around the world as basically saying no, 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 we also have problems with China. It's not just the government; it's the China, it's China too. Um, so. I think it's de decidedly uh, – I would agree, first off, that I think definitely countries on China's border have a tougher experience with China. I think that bears out when you think of a country like India as well, um, where, where anti-Chinese sentiment is now really kind of skyrocketing, owing largely to the, the border skirmish, I guess, that's relatively recent. So I think, again, Africa is, is as you guys know better, certainly better than I do, is too big a continent to kind of uh, – to describe in kind of one sentence or one one thing. But I definitely think there are certain countries in which you have seen antipathy towards China being on the rise, despite the fact that they're, of course, nowhere nowhere near China. Um, and I would think of Argentina as, as another example on that front as well. I guess, you know, I have a little bit of a problem with the argument because there's a lot, I don't disagree with the fact that there's a lot of anti-Chinese sentiment in many countries around the world. I think that generally comes with being a power as big as China is. There is no global power as large as China or the United States that is that hmm. doesn't suffer these types of, uh, of issues. You and I are both Americans. We have grown up with anti-American sentiment in many parts of the world, in the Western Hemisphere, in the Middle East, in many parts of Africa. It, it's just It comes with the territory. I guess the problem that I have with the argument that you're making, and I'd like to get your take on this, is that's not how you set up your article. And I don't know if you wrote the headline or if the folks at World Politics Review wrote, wrote the headline, but you said, at their peril. Global South leaders are ignoring yeah. anti-China sentiment at their peril. And, and, and that's where I guess I have the problem because we hmm. have a demonstration or we have people are pissed off in Zambia or even in Cambodia. Hun Sen's government is not challenged by the fact that public sentiment is... Is, is negative towards China. Hun Sen is firmly in control in Cambodia. The same here in, in Vietnam and certainly in other, in, other, you know, in other parts of the world as well. So the question of peril is the, is, the, is the part that I'm getting stuck on. Can you kind of dive into that? Do you really think that anti-Chinese sentiment will challenge the legitimacy or the stability of these countries? Sure. No, I think when when I think of peril, what I was referring to was more so, I think, stability issues than I was governing issues. I mean, I 100% agree with you that Hun Sen is not going anywhere as long as he's alive and wants to be in power. I think that's like not a question. But I do think the divergence between public and private sentiment on China does nonetheless kind of risk spurring the violence that you've seen in Vietnam, the violence that you've seen in Pakistan. The violence you saw in Vietnam was six years ago. Of course. No, no, no. I'm not disagreeing. I mean, and I've been here for 12 years. That was one instance in six years. And I guess, but you don't have any data to back up the argument. It's all anecdotes and anecdotes are powerful, but we don't know necessarily how deep or how broad that sentiment runs. Because again, as we pointed out, the, the survey data says otherwise. How do you make that argument based on anecdotes alone? 
So it was interesting, actually, that you that you mentioned the Afrobarometer data. I think it was of the 18 countries, if you actually look, it was the positive view of China actually declined from 2014-15 to 2019-20. And I want to say 14 or 15 of them, which is minor, but I think relatively important. No, I, I think... This is an argument that is a little bit future looking. And I think there is no question that, again, I think the Philippines is I, I know you guys don't like the kind of argument of obviously countries being close to China and that it's a very different from Africa. And it certainly is very different from Africa. But I mean, in the kind of covid world since that since the pandemic really started, you have seen these protests in Manila that had to be broken up. You've seen them as well. Uh, you've seen anti-Chinese violence in Zambia, I'm sure, as you guys know, and you've seen it in Argentina as well. And if that's not a diverse swath of countries, I don't know what is. And I, I definitely agree with you that Kun Sen's government is not at risk. I think very few of these governments, particularly the, the undemocratic ones that are relatively stable, are certainly not at risk to falling because of anti-Chinese sentiment. I, I think it runs the risk of being yet another issue. I think that's how I would think about it, is these are countries that are largely kind of not well run, there are poverty issues, underdevelopment issues, and particularly during COVID, I mean, you're having kind of deep uh, inequality issues, there's going to be limited fiscal space to maneuver moving forward. So these countries are not in a good place. And I think where you're going to have kind of public sent public frustration on a vast array of issues, my concern is that anti-Chinese sentiment could become yet another one of those issues that risks instability. I think I, I, I want to say again that I don't think governments are necessarily at risk of falling. But this is at risk of becoming just another headache for them. Is how is how I would is how I would kind of uh, explain it. Um, in your article, you you raise um, the 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 few cases we've seen over the last few years where the Chinese government actually intervened in other countries to 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 remove Chinese nationals um, or to evacuate Chinese nationals from um, from those countries. Do you foresee more of these kind of incidents happening in the in the coming year, few years? Yeah, I think it's interesting because as much as China, I think China wants to avoid it as much as possible. But I think since Libya, they know that it's going to kind of increasingly become common. And I, I would argue that it is going to become increasingly common, but it's going to depend on the country. I mean, I think Myanmar is an interesting case because, I mean, it's kind of largely not a functional state and it wasn't largely it wasn't largely functional before the coup anyway um, and that's relatively easy it's on China's border they can kind of order state-owned enterprises to leave but I mean as much as a kind of state-run media is saying well we're gonna go into Pakistan and pull out Chinese Chinese folks that seems extraordinarily unlikely to me I mean Pakistan is a deeply complicated country as as everyone kind of knows so it, it's interesting to me because I do think that these types of interventions are going to become more likely and yet I think China should frankly kind of look at the United States and understand how badly these have gone in the past and how deep the ramifications can be domestically I mean I, I would think to Somalia with Bill Clinton in the 1990s and think about just how those few American soldiers kind of dying in the streets of Mogadishu was so disruptive domestically and I think particularly in a China that is now so kind of nationalistic after years of patriotic education and the way she has kind of uh, reorganized I guess the the system in many ways that I would be concerned if I was sitting in Beijing and thinking, all right, where, what state might collapse next and what are we going to have to do to get our people out? And will there be videos and photos going around social media of kind of our people being beaten or our people being killed or whatever? Because um, that I actually think is an interesting risk to, to kind of the Chinese government itself. Yeah, I don't actually see that. And again, I, I'm enjoying our discussion here. So and, and this is all in oh, the good. spirit of yeah, having of a great discussion. But so here's part of the problem. The social media impact that is common in Western politics, in, in, well, let me just say, rephrase that, that's common in every other country except China, because <laughs> sure. China's walled off from the rest of the totally. world and completely decoupled from, from the rest of the world on social media, doesn't impact the Chinese. Because number one, hmm. people can't see Facebook, Twitter, WhatsApp, and all of that. And they can't even see TikTok. And then what they what does get into China is very quickly scrubbed either by the censors, the human censors, or the algorithms. So there's not going to be a social media uprising of Chinese soldiers being dragged through the streets of Mogadishu the same way there mm. was with the Americans because they just won't see it. That's number one. Number two is that the Chinese 
passed the, the anti-terrorism law in 2015 that gave them the authority to intervene in other countries to protect people and property. They, you know, that is, they delicately danced around the non-intervention, but they have sure. the legal authority now to do that, back in, from 2015, if I'm correct. They now have the actual capability to do it. They have the force projection that they did not have 10 or 15 years ago. In Djibouti, they've got a base and they've got the, the capacity to do it. But yet, we have seen in the Middle East and in Africa over the past 12 months, one kidnapping after another, brutal, violent kidnappings after another. Nothing. The Chinese, since Yemen, as far as I know, have not done any large-scale intervention. So I guess my question is, where does the concern come from? The capacity is there. The legal authority is there. The ability is there. The need is there, but they have not mm. acted. So why are you concerned when, in fact, we? it's been almost half a decade since the last time they did this? So I think... The only time you're going to see an intervention like this is something like Libya or Yemen, I think, where it is kind of a large scale problem. I definitely agree that kind of the, the one off kidnapping and kind of murders after another, as awful as they are, are not enough to kind of bring Beijing to kind of motiv be motivated to put military force behind it. That wouldn't be controversial, though, to have a I mean, all governments would be evacuating totally. their, their people out of a situation like Libya. So that's not really that remarkable. I mean, the French were evacuating. In fact, the Chinese were better at, and more efficient than the Americans were. If you recall, during the if Libya evacuation, the Americans yep. couldn't get the planes there. They couldn't get ships there. But that, that's not something to be worried about, that if in a massive humanitarian you know, situation where foreign nationals need to be evacuated, that the Chinese would be lining up their military to, to do that. Is that what you're concerned about? No, no, no. I'm not concerned about an evacuation, obviously. Human humanitarian evacuation is extremely positive. I have nothing, nothing, nothing to worry about there. But I think I would look at Pakistan and think if these terrorist attacks continue— how long is China going to sit back and kind of say, well, we're not going to send in forces or some type of advisors to do something? I mean, that would be kind of what I'm thinking about looking forward. But you never want to get into you never want to intervene in a country's in a country's internal politics, especially a country like that. So but here's an I have an interesting question for you. I'll flip it a little bit. I'm curious if you think obviously if kind of if China continues deepening relations with these kind of developing developing countries, particularly ones like Pakistan or even moving forward with Afghanistan who have complicated domestic politics to kind of say the least and potentially putting kind of Chinese citizens in state-owned kind of enterprises in harm's way, do you not think these kind of further type of interventions are likely. I mean, in Pakistan, you've seen, I mean, a few terrorist attacks in the last year against kind of Chinese, against Chinese people. I mean, one targeted the Chinese ambassador, which is pretty stunning. But I mean, it didn't. But I'm, I'm curious if that attack had been successful and had kind of or successful from the Pakistani Taliban's point of view, and it actually killed the Chinese ambassador. Do you not think that there would have been Chinese forces in Pakistan relatively quickly? No. Interesting. Okay. No. No way. Interesting. No way. I think they have a much higher tolerance for pain and suffering than we do in yeah. the US and Europe. I think that they can tolerate the deaths of their people. And I, we cover the Chinese press quite a bit. The kidnappings yeah. and the murders of Chinese nationals in Africa are covered all over the place. There's no yellow ribbons being put mm -hmm. out on the streets for the five or six you know, engineers in Mali that are taken. N no. No, in fact, people are saying, well, they really shouldn't have been there. They're on their own. Totally. Do you know what I mean? So there isn't that public pressure that's putting onto the government to intervene. But I certainly do mm. not think that they would, they would violate their, you know, deploy military forces into another country for retaliation or to rescue a, an ambassador. I, I just, that, there's no precedent for that as far as I can see. That's not to say that they won't do it one day, but there's, I don't know where that concern comes from because we just haven't seen that. Well, Eric, just, just, um, you know, I, I guess, you know, I, I tend to agree with you on, 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 you know, kind of on this particular point, but I guess the, the, the wider question is like as China, as China's influence as a, as a global superpower grows, it's going to face one of those situations at some stage, right? Um, and there we were not talking about, you know, for example, a terrorist attack against hotel, but say, 
you know, the blowing up of an embassy. Like, for example, the, the accidental bombing of, of the Chinese embassy in Belgrade during during the, the Kosovo war. Th- that ended up being a situation that couldn't be avoided or couldn't be ignored on, on, on Chinese state media and that and where the, the government was forced into, into some kind of gesture, right? So, I mean, in, if, if, that, if, if that kind of, God forbid, that kind of thing happens, then at some stage China's going to have to face face what its options are as a superpower, right? Um, so what do you think those options are going to look like? Actually, I want to ask both of you guys. I think it depends where, what country this happens in. I think it, that will guide so much of it. And I want to be very clear to people listening to this. I am not saying this to defend the Chinese or endorse the Chinese in any way. They can do that on their own. I'm actually more taking issue with Charles's (laughs) argument here just for the spirit of our discussion here. So I just I want to clarify that. But I think in Washington, you hear this hysteria that comes up Mm. about the Chinese expand military expansion and the Chinese are going to do this and the Chinese are going to do <laughs> well, that. So I will clarify, I've only been in Washington a month, so I'm not too, I'm not, I'm not too, uh, too looped in you there You don't yet. have your, uh, your card-carrying Washington <laughs> exactly, card. You know. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> That's funny. Um, no, but I think, I think it, I totally agree with you, actually, that it depends on the country. First off, I, I think China, I would hope, knows better than, say, say a Chinese, because say the Chinese ambassador is targeted in a country like Iraq, I think China knows better than to say we're going to send our foreign forces into Iraq following what's been the case there for 20 years and kind of how much antipathy there is towards outside intervention. And I think the same goes for somewhere like Afghanistan. Um, but I wonder if, say, some kind of – say some, uh, this would be a little far-fetched, but if we're thinking down the line – Say perhaps there was a terrorist attack against kind of a Chinese ambassador or, or a, an official. I think some a Chinese official, not a private citizen, kind of attached to a BRI project, but a an actual official in a country like Cambodia or a country like Laos. I, I am picking those two because I think they're probably the two most China aligned in Southeast Asia. I would be surprised if there was not some kind of. Chinese forces sent in there to do some type of investigation or kind of whatever, some gesture. Well, I they think did a rendition in Thailand, if I think, it, yes. if I'm correct. Yep. And, and, and so there might be a rendition, which is highly covert, the same way that, that U.S. intelligence mm-hmm. did renditions in black ops as well. But that's a very different thing than what we've been talking about in terms of full-scale types of interventions. Do you know what I mean? With yeah, this, you know, sending in the Delta Force the same way that the Americans did into, into Iran and, mm. and whatnot, or tried to do into Iran. And I guess we veered very far off of our, of our topic here, but it's an interesting discussion nonetheless. And I think, but it just gets to this point, the little bit that I feel that, again, you were picking up a lot of, of examples. So, for example, you, you quoted Zambia, mm. and, and admittedly, you, you have come clean that you're not a, an Africanist <laughs> or a Zambian specialist, but the, you said in late May, a trio of Zambians beat three Chinese textile workers to death in the capital, mm-hmm. Lusaka, just days after its mayor accused Chinese factory bosses of slavery reloaded. The, the fact is that, that those murders had nothing to do with China. It was a robbery by ex-employees. Sure. And I just that so I don't think those are examples that get a lot of attention in U.S. and European media as somehow connected to China. But it turns out that on the investigation, they were robbing the place and they they murdered the the Chinese owners and then they burned the place down because they wanted to conceal evidence. But there was no political motive in anything that they did. And that's where I get a little Mm. bit nervous when we kind of string together these types of anecdotes, because in every country that has immigrants, you do have these types of tensions. If we in the United States looked at every single time, and this is what Trump tried to do, every single time an immigrant did something, he said, see, that's it. And I fear that we're in that space a little hmm. bit there. Yeah, no, it's an interesting point. I mean, I definitely am not trying to kind of, I'm definitely not trying to model Trump on that front or, or any other front, I think. But um, no, it's an interesting point. And I, I think I'll, I take your point on Zambia. And I, I will say that I did not, I did not know that. My only experience with it was through the Western media, which again, makes make sense as a non-Africanist, I guess. In, in relation to this, I, I was wondering to like, how does one... How does one draw the line between between kind of characterizing these these kind of incidents as as a, kind of an emanation of anti Chinese sentiment or like a kind of a you know the way you can kind of read them as as the population 
in some kind of ways expressing its, you know, this kind of like decision about China, like yay or nay on China. And to which extent, like as Eric mentioned, crime is an issue, but another issue is racism, right? Um, so for example, like all of all of the anti-Asian hate crimes that we've seen in the US over the last two years or so, um, to which extent can we read that as this kind of referendum from the American public about what they feel about China? And to which extent is it just re like reflecting entrenched and structural racism within within some American communities um, you know what I mean like you know kind of like how how like how, how do you in, in the writing of the article how did you go ahead how did you go um, to, to or how did you proceed to kind of to, to try and kind of like work out those kind of framing issues sure yeah I think it's a good point I think racism definitely definitely plays a role here I think there's no question and I think when you look at the I, I think I would say off the bat in the United States I don't think it's necessarily kind of the anti-Asian hate is a referendum on China I think it's a response to kind of I, I think it is a, kind of a general problem with racism domestically I mean I think it's also the case that it's not even like uh, kind of American racists are, are particularly targeting Chinese Americans or Chinese folks in the United States it's kind of Asians of all of, from all backgrounds I mean this was a similar story after 9-11 where I mean I I grew up in New York City, and I remember after 9-11, there were all these stories of um, early stories of people attacking Sikhs because they wore turbans. And obviously, that was not a – I mean, that was not a much of a referendum on anything. It was just kind of, I think, national – fierce nationalism combined with kind of some structural racism and media hyping of a threat. So I, I definitely am wary of that, and I, and I understand. Um, I think when I was going about writing this article, I, the reason I think I focused on Pakistan and Cambodia are those are two countries I know well. Before COVID, I was actually supposed to go on a reporting trip to Pakistan. I'm, I'm sad I didn't get to get there, but I can kind of did the reporting virtually. And I mean, in Cambodia, somewhere I lived for, for over a year, for about a year. And I think I spoke with people in both of those countries and kind of went through this and, and made it very clear that or they made clear to me that this is not them saying we hate Chinese people. We don't dislike people of Chinese ethnicity. I think there is actually a pretty clear separation of the Chinese state and of Chinese people, although I will admit that in certain kind of parts of Southeast Asia, particularly in Cambodians I've spoken to in particular, there is, I think, a little bit of, of racism within there that is becoming increasingly anti-Chinese, because the line is increasingly hard to draw between where does the Chinese state end and where does the private kind of public begin. Um, so when you talk to, I think, the, the Cambodians in a city like Sihanoukville, where there are kind of these mass kind of uh, Chinese gambling operations and come, there's all, all these kind of reports in local media, not even in the Western media, but reports in local media of kind of, uh, of criminality attached to Chinese gangs and whatever. I think a lot of people are increasingly seeing that as that is the fault of the Chinese state, um, even though I think it's not. I mean, there, there's nothing that Beijing can really do to crack down on. I guess f their mafia operations abroad, particularly in a country as kind of with with such lacking rule of law like a Cambodia or like a Laos, so I think it actually is a real concern that the, what is anti CCP or anti Chinese government kind of sentiment overlapping with a, a dangerous form of I actually think racism, and I think that's I mean the, the Argentina example I referenced in the article is is something closer to those lines where it was I mean a bunch of Argentine Argentinians were called the Chinese businessman coronavirus and then they brawled um, that's not rooted in kind of anti that's not necessarily anti Chinese government that's racism um, but I think it's it, it's interesting when those two overlap I think you do have an increasing kind of problem where if if Chinese nationals abroad are facing both kind of frustration on one level with their government's policies as Americans have forever um, maybe at a different kind of scale in certain parts of the world that's not a huge issue alone but when you mesh that with kind of what has increasingly I think become a, a form of violent racism it, I think that's a real a real worry let me put a different narrative to you and just to sure. get your take on it, because this is how I see it. Uh, and I'd love to I'd love to hear what you think about it. I think that Xi Jinping wakes up every morning and he knows that there's a very, very long list of people who hate his guts. <laughs> I don't think he cares. Hmm. And um, I don't think the Chinese government cares that much if people in Zimbabwe or people in Zambia or people in Argentina don't like them. I can tell that they don't like they don't care that much because they don't invest that much 
uh-huh. in making an effort to try and persuade civil society. They don't engage civil society that much. They invest disproportionate amounts of effort to making sure that the 15 or 20 people surrounding uh-huh. Nigerian President Muhammadu Buhari are well taken care of. And at the end of the day, for them, their interests, and this is about politics, this is not about popularity, okay? Again, I don't think they genuinely care if Nigerian public opinion doesn't like the Chinese. Publicly, they'll tell you, of course, we care and we want to have, you know, win-win relations. But I think when they close the doors and they, you know, they're by themselves, they're like, the most important thing for us is the geopolitical you know, interests. And they're very transactional in that approach. If Nigeria votes with us the way we want them to vote with us, if Nigeria has trade relations the way we want trade relations to be done, if Nigeria is aligned with our yeah. worldview, yeah. we're good. Huh. If the people don't like it, I don't really care. No, I think it's really fascinating because I think you're right that she himself and kind of perhaps those around him do not care. I think that's totally correct. But what's really interesting is that, I mean, Chinese diplomats for years spent a lot of money and effort to actually kind of increase their cultural literacy. I mean, there was a real effort here to kind of go into a country like Zambia or like Nepal or whatever and say, well, we are going to be more respectful of you than the Americans have been. The Americans come in or the West generally, um, or, and this is the kind of the local view, are dictating to us on, on human rights. They're not kind of doing development in the way we need. And they still say that. They that's the public it. diplomacy. That's totally. the, the non-intervention win-win. 100%. But that's the, the, the rhetoric. I'm talking about the substance of it. At the end of the day, yes, they have Confucius Institutes and they spent a billion dollars on CGTN. Nobody watches CGTN. Your average Confucius Institute really caters, again, is part to me, what I look at Confucius Institutes, is they're part of elite capture because they're at universities in developing countries that really the only, the top 5% of the society can attend oftentimes. And the numbers are so small. We're looking at, you know, 80 to 100 people in a given year sometimes that go through, you know, some Confucius Institute programs. So again, it's, it's very small, but it's not a large scale effort to, to, to get hearts and minds. They will tell you differently. I bet you if I had a Chinese diplomat here, he would be very offended by what I just said. Yeah, no, I think it, it, it used to be the hearts and mind effort. And I think my point is that is that she has mostly shifted away from that. And even if the hearts and I think it's it's unfortunate. Um, but I understand, as you're saying, kind of he doesn't he doesn't care. But I think where I draw the difference between kind of as you were saying before, someone like she saying, Well, I don't care what the Zambians think about us, versus Trump saying, I don't care what the Democrats think about me, I actually think there's more of a problem for I mean, possibly I could be wrong, but I'm, th- I'm my, the way I think about this is if you're okay, put it this way, if she has said, well, I don't care what the Filipinos think about us. I don't care. I'm just going to cozy up to Duterte and take care of the 20 people around Duterte and we'll be fine. Um, clearly, that's not working because whoever takes office after Duterte, assuming it's not Duterte in some weird way where he comes in as the vice president, is going to be more China skeptical and more pro-US than he's yeah, been. Be careful of that. Not necessarily. Be careful of that. And the Chinese are super, super good at building relationships with opposition parties. Again, there's no ideology here for them. This is all pragmatism. So they will have somebody like Michael Sada, who in Zambia back in the mid 2000s, who literally was the most outspoken China critic in the world. And they managed to turn him into one of their best coziest friends. He was a big teddy bear after he became president. No, I think you're right. I think Malaysia is a helpful example. Malaysia is another good example, especially here in Southeast Asia, where China exerts so much influence. And again, this is not a good example because it's a little bit like going to Cuba and to Mexico and saying, what do you think of Americans? (laughs) It's just too complicated a history. And people have so many emotions wrapped up in these relationships that getting a straight answer is very difficult. Here in Vietnam, you know, the public hate the Chinese, but at the end of the day, they also love the fact that China is their largest market. They've got relatives in China across the border. It's so interdependent and complicated. No, absolutely. So that, that makes it very difficult to, to make that assessment. Kobus, last question to you. Uh, Charles, you, obviously, as you mentioned, you're, you're like recently arrived in D.C. Um, and the, the article will be read, obviously, in, with, within a, a Washington that is extremely, de- extremely invested in a bipolar vision at the moment, right? Kind of like they, 
there's really like like people really work hard to try and kind of to 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 look to look at the world in terms of of uh, uh, us versus them or U.S. versus China kind of narrative. So. Um, you know, do you, like what? What other kind of takeaways that you would like that particular audience to 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 take from the article? And do you worry that it might be that that they might be a like, oh, okay, like you know, kind of like China is unpopular everywhere. We, i.e., we're winning, right? Like, is, do 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 you kind of foresee that 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 would be the takeaway, or or kind of how like how, how like you know why what kind of what, what what do you see the kind of like conclusions that Western countries should take about their own position in the global South from from this kind of from this dynamic you're describing? Well, I hope that's not the takeaway. I hope we're winning is not the takeaway because I think that's extremely not the case. No, I think as much and I think as as our conversation has kind of uh, has touched on as much as I think at least that there is kind of a rising anti-Chinese sentiment in many countries around the world. That certainly does not mean that the United States is is winning um, or that the West is winning. I think as because is apparent everywhere, but I think is, is, is arguably most apparent in Southeast Asia as much as kind of American rhetoric and American kind of military support and diplomacy is welcomed, if there's no kind of economic assistance or trade plan attached, it's, I'm not going to say it's irrelevant, but you're not going to pry away kind of countries that are somewhat firmly kind of aligned with China or balancing China. Um, you're not going to pry away those countries without kind of an economic, uh, a real kind of economic plan, which the United States doesn't really have. I mean, that's kind of the, the, the my fear in Asia is it's nice to kind of jump around Southeast Asia and, and talk nicely with all the kind of leaders, but we're not in the TPP and kind of China is the region's kind of economic benefactor. So I'm not exactly... I don't. I certainly don't think the United States is kind of winning. Um, and I think, again, in a place like Southeast Asia, I think balancing is more likely to kind of be the future moving forward, with the exceptions of Cambodia, Laos, and, and now kind of post-coup Myanmar. But I don't think the Philippines is going to say, we're pro-US, we're anti-China, Good say goodbye to China. I don't think, certainly kind of Singapore, or Malaysia, Indonesia are not, are, are not doing that. I think they understand, well, I think they want both there. I think there's an understanding of, there's a frustration with kind of, I think China's growing aggressive military stance over South China Sea and vast kind of a, a number of other issues. But there's also a fear that the United States is kind of it can be missing in action and every 4 years it's it's something could change and we could the United States could be totally out of the region and i think the rest of the the, the global south and developing world um, is i think an interesting story where there are quote unquote i guess countries that the United States or China could i guess quote unquote win i kind of hate that that term to describe a country but even still i think after 4 years of trump it's hard to imagine that the United States is winning, despite the kind of seven months, I guess, we've we've had of Biden that are, look, are, have certainly been, been more successful, and he's certainly had some success rebuilding many of these kind of partnerships and whatnot. Um, but no, I, I hope the lesson that is taken away is not we're winning. I think the lesson that should be taken away is much more so, look, China has kind of these these image problems in a lot of countries around the world and if the united states wants to kind of compete and if the goal is to kind of fend off what i think many in washington and i would in many ways in some ways subscribe um to kind of this this chinese claim to kind of uh, refashion the u.s order to kind of in its own image if that's if the goal is to fend that off i would argue you need to actually have one a more substantial economic component in a lot of these countries and you just need to reinvest in kind of basic diplomacy i mean the fact that the fact that i mean we are we've kind of been really mia from any of these asean meetings or kind of meetings like that in the rest of the world through the trump area and even frankly so far into the biden era he has not yet done a phone call with a southeast asian leader which is it's a little strange mind um so i mean just mind blowing yeah but let me so, you know you very you mentioned the tpp and that's the trans pacific partnership that was the the largest trade deal in the world before the Africa Continental Free Trade Agreement was passed. And let me tell you, from someone sitting here in Southeast Asia who's been here for now a decade, the bitterness and resentment mm. about the United States walking away at the altar is right yep. at the surface. Like, people have not forgotten that. Yep. They, and, 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 so, and there is no getting back into this club, by the way. Like, the U.S. was flirting with the idea of coming back into the club, and everybody went, mm, no, 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 we're good. We, we, we passed this thing. We've moved on. 
And then interesting how China is now flirting with coming into the TPP. Very interesting on that as well. And I guess the point here is that, yes, Kobus, you're so right to kind of try to pull this argument out of a binary win-lose. And the United States uh, certainly has a lot of ground to make up. China is, is, is encountering its own challenges as well. The article is Global South leaders are ignoring anti-China sentiment at their peril. You can find it on the World Politics Review website, which, by the way, I just subscribed to today. So they, uh, they got a little bit of our money today. Uh, I kept running into their paywall, and I just said, you know, and Howard French writes there, you're writing there, a bunch of really great people are writing there. Yep. And so I finally broke down and, 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 and ponied up the money for the subscription. By the way, it's the kind of thing that if there's content that you like, you got to pay for it. You got to support good journalism. So that's my little, uh, my little plea out there. Charles, thank you so much for one of the liveliest discussions that we've had on this show in a very long time. We really appreciate it. We really enjoyed the, uh, the, the you know, the back and forth. If totally. people want to follow what you're reading and writing and they want to connect with you, what's the best way to do that? Sure. Well, thanks for having me. This was a, this was a ton of fun. Yeah, I'm pretty active on Twitter. I'm just at Charles Dunst. So that's my name, Charles, and then D-U-N-S-T. Um, and then my website is just charlesdunst.com if you want to check out things I've written in the past. But that's, that's pretty much it. Fantastic. We'll put links to all three, your website, your Twitter handle, and also your article in the show notes of this podcast. Charles, thank you so much for taking the time. We wish you the very best and looking forward to circling back with you after you've been in Washington for a little bit longer (laughs) and you'll be all jaded and cynical in a few months. Yeah, exactly. Awesome. Thank you, guys. Kobus, I'm so glad that we had the chance to talk with Charles. Again, I didn't agree with the framing of the article, but I really enjoyed the back and forth in the conversation. And I guess the point that I'm trying to convey here and and really trying to make is that I've been seeing the negative anti-Chinese perceptions in places like the DRC that have been going on for a long time. And in Kenya, we've been talking about this at least for four or five years, if not longer. Zambia goes all the way back to the Kola mine shooting. Do you remember that? Way years and years ago. But it just doesn't seem to translate into anything at the policy level. So, and that's why I come back to this point that says, okay, so maybe public opinion towards the Chinese is negative in a lot of these countries. It doesn't necessarily change the politics. And that's where I took issue with the title of the article, which said that it was at their peril. I don't think it's at the peril of Edgar Lungu in in Zambia or Felix Chesekedi in the DRC or Uruguru Kenyatta in Kenya, where public opinion towards the Chinese is quite sour, at least going based on what we see on social media, in the media, and a lot of the narratives, which I don't know if those are accurate representations. I don't think anybody really knows. Because as you pointed out, the polling data is really imprecise. So again, I'm going to end this conversation right where we started it, which is, uh, who knows what's going on? Well, you know, kind of, I... I I, I wouldn't actually say that the, that I necessarily think the polling data is imprecise. Um, you know, like I, I think I think p- people like Afrobarometer do incredible work, but I think the challenge is how to read the data. You know, there's a, because there's a, there's a few things, a few different factors involved, right? Kind of like one is one of one of the really interesting findings that Afrobarometer got, found in in its I think its last survey that it published, which was I think last year was that some of the disinformation that we saw coming out of the Trump administration actually affected the popularity of China China in the developing world. So, for example, particularly the narrative around asset seizures that, that we've spent many hours debunking, have like managed to actually push down like public approval of China as a developer as a developing development partner for example so you know so so I think that's one of the reasons why this data is incredibly valuable but I think one of one of the one of the other complicating factors is that you know like uh, we, we see we see a kind of a conflation between different Chinese actors here right kind of like we, we see a kind of conflation of the Chinese state with Chinese companies for example and to a certain extent, that makes sense because Chinese companies are still so much more tethered to the Chinese state than Western companies are to Western states. Um, you know, so, and you have state-owned corporations. You have state-owned corporations with the name China in the name. Um, so it's so it, it, it's much easier to conflate 
you know, kind of uh, a company, you know, kind of mining in a nature reserve, as we've seen controversies over the last two weeks in, in, in different African countries, with this Chinese state, then it would necessarily be, for example, if, for example, if you're Nigerian and you, you're angry at Shell Oil, which particular government are you angry at? You know, are you angry at the Dutch government? Like, you know, kind of does does even like does conflating Shell Oil and and its problematic kind of presence in in parts of Africa does that even translate into any kind of resentment against the country? Maybe not, because the the company the relationship between the countries and the and, and the and the companies are just different, right? It's just different. So so that's there's a lot of these kind of complications that I think need to be kind of teased out. And then the data from people like Afrobarometer is really key to doing that, but it's a very complicated thing to do. Yeah, and I, I think it's impossible in this day and age, and I'm so glad you brought this up that an article like this doesn't get sucked into the polarized discussion on China in a place like Washington, DC. I mean, there's just no way it can be extracted from that. And, you know, I was writing today, and it's, it's one of these, these nightmare scenarios today where I was writing, and I wrote this great column on American values. This is a values-led, you know, foreign policy now. All we hear about democratic values, aligned values, shared values, everything's about values. And so in the context of... Chinese public or public opinion towards the Chinese being negative. Again, I think that a lot of people in Washington will take that as being, well, people perceive us as being good. And our new values-led foreign policy is an embodiment of that. And yet on the same day that they're talking about values-led foreign policy on Capitol Hill, this is these were testimonies on Capitol Hill. The administration approved a $1.3 billion, the annual normal military subsidies and aid for Egypt. And I think just people are exhausted from that. Do you know what I mean? Like you're speaking out of both sides of your mouth. How can you say that we are going to align ourselves with democracies and we're only going to really cherish democracies and we're going to be values led and then here you go, a billion bucks to a dictator. I mean... It's just, yep. it's yeah. just, it's yeah. exhausting to listen to this. And yet people in Washington continually take themselves seriously and saying, don't look over my shoulder at the horrific things that are going on in Egypt that are underwritten by American military aid. Look at my little shiny B3W kind of, you know, bell and whistle that I'm holding up, which has no backing to it. B3W, where's that now? Do you know what I mean? That's the part that I'm just like, Ugh. So I think the U.S. would be so much more effective in these kinds of arguments if they had some substance actually backing up the rhetoric. Yeah, you know, I, I agree with I agree with that. And but I think one one of the questions that then raises is, you know, we're living in, you know, kind of it's it's Joseph Nye's world, and we're just living in it, right? Kind of the, you know, he he he's for those of us who, who those who are listening who are not is isn't a kind of massive nerd on these issues. Joseph Nye was the the Harvard academic who coined the the, the concept of soft power. Um, and since since soft power became what well, was coined, it became gospel, right? Kind of the the, the idea that that um, you know, kind of that a country, the popularity of a country, you know, translates into a form of of foreign, like geopolitical kind of you know, kind of power or leverage, and that that you know, kind of, and that that these the, the the values projected by the country is is key to that leverage. This concept has essentially taken over, you know, kind of political thinking in many, many capitals around the world. But I think all of these complications that we're kind of prodding at and pulling at different strings at shows that it's not nearly as simple as that, right? Like the 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 how you get foreign governments to work with your government and the kind of pressures that 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 these governments are under and the the way that the way that popular opinion about a country translates into policy outcomes at the government level none of those things are clear right kind of none none of those dynamics are are, are, are as clear and as kind of simple as as a, a kind of a classic soft power kind of argument would would seem to make them and yet. 
there's very little kind of questioning of of that concept, right? Kind of, and and all of all of these ideas of kind of value based foreign policy, all of that is kind of you know different versions of that same kind of idea. But I think it's not really nearly clear that that is actually how how kind of how governments are swayed. I think there's still a perception in many parts of the United States that if people smoke Marlboro cigarettes, go to McDonald's, drink Starbucks, and wear Levi's jeans and listen to Beyonce, that they like American policy. And that's the classic Joseph Nye connection, that is American culture leads the way and then opens up the door to be more amenable to U.S. foreign policy and the United States as a country. I think the contradictions both vis-a-vis China and the United States can live side by side. So a 17-year-old Nigerian, which is the typical Nigerian today population-wise and demographically, has a, a Huawei phone or a transit phone, listens to boom play music, watches Kung Fu on Star TV, maybe even enjoys Chinese food, but has no affinity necessarily for China itself, that those can live perfectly you know, together. Same thing with the United States. I think that's a hard jump for a lot of Americans. We still believe in this idea of American exceptionalism. And that was on full display just a couple of weeks ago here in Vietnam, where the U.S. Secretary of Defense came to town and gave this speech and says, we are an imperfect country, but we are a country that can rebuild itself and change. And it's the, the usual rhetoric that the United States has about itself. But he really hit hard on this American exceptionalism idea. That is not a concept that the average American even believes anymore. If you look at the polling data in the United States, the majority of Americans don't believe that we're an exceptional people anymore. Now, this pisses off the conservatives and the right wing who resent that. But the reality is, is that millennials and Gen Y and Gen Xers or Gen X and Y and Zs now uh, don't necessarily have that value. So he's kind of putting something out there that most Americans don't even believe. And and again, I don't quite know where I'm going with this, but it's this idea of the, the rhetoric in public policy and the reality on the ground are two very different things. I think the Chinese focus on the more tangible, practical things on the ground, and they're terrible at what they do in the public diplomacy space. So they just kind of say, eh, okay, we'll move on from that. That's the point that I'm trying to make. I guess I guess what, what I would add to that and, and um is that you know when when like in that last sentence the Chinese w- would refer to the Chinese government, right? That's right. Um, and but the Communist the same, Party and the Chinese yeah, government. Yeah, and the and the party. Um but at the same time I think there's this two two other kind of things that, that are that is true at the same time is that I think, you know, if, if one is, there's this kind of idea, this kind of idea of American exceptionalism, I think where that kind of thinking is relatively strong actually is in China. You know, like among, among you know, there, there is, I think, a, a strong strand of Chinese exceptionalism. That kind of rhetoric is pretty strong in China now. And, and of course, the, the, the party rides on the back of that. Um, but it has this kind, of, this kind of pushback where there is this kind of, and I think Charles, in, in this sense, is, you know, Charles kind of identified a, a real pattern, I think, that there is a, a more pressure within China to, for the government to, to protect Chinese citizens overseas, even though, you know, as, as a like you, you pointed out in lots of cases, like you know, someone can get can get kidnapped and no one cares, right? But the I, I think I think as China as China is pushing towards the more central position in the world, the, I think Charles identifies something that is going to come up on the horizon. There is going to be a moment when China, when the Chinese government is faced with this kind of you know whether it be terrorism or whatever it is. This kind of like, you know, kind of some kind of hard pushback from somewhere in a in a in a foreign country um, against China itself, like you know, kind of and and you know, kind of drawing in or pulling in Chinese. And what do you in, think in they're going to do? Way. They just had they just lost nine people in Pakistan. I mean, yeah. what yeah. do you what do you think they're like, going to do? Well, you know, there's there's the question. I think I think like the, this, like we, we we are seeing increasing, like we we are seeing more and more of these kind of problems popping up around the world as there are more Chinese people around the world. At some stage, one of them is going to be so big that it's going to be that it's going to become a kind of a, a social media perfect storm within China. It's not going to be possible to for for simple censorship to to, oh. to block it out. And oh, then Cobus. we're in a oh, different field, Cobus. right? Kind of, then we have to see what they're going to do. Oh, my good friend, Kobus, never underestimate the Chinese ability to censor content. 
I mean, you, you sound like Bill Clinton back in the old days when he's saying, you know, controlling the Internet is like nailing jello to the wall. No, it's, it's more a situation that, that, there's a, that. That, there's, that there's going to be a moment where, where there's going to be a, like some calculation about political profit that can be drawn from something that will then spin out of control. Like, for, like for example, the, 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 the accidental bombing of the Chinese embassy in Belgrade, right? There's, there's, a, there's a threshold beyond which it doesn't become, it's, it's just not a media management issue anymore. Right when it's when when there is going to be a moment when the Chinese government is is going to be pushed into some kind of where they're going to have to take some kind of geopolitical solution to some kind of problem like this, you know, and and then we'll have to see what that actually looks like. We'll have to see what it is, but I'm not underestimating the ability for them to spin the narrative any way that they want and to shape it in such a way that it suits their interests and it doesn't spin out of control. They have invested hundreds of billions of dollars in the most sophisticated security and surveillance state in the world and that human history has ever seen before. So their ability to control narratives is unrivaled. So I'm not so sure that that political pressure will be there, but you're right. Maybe there is something so big that even they can't control it, but we haven't seen that yet. So at this point, it's all speculation, and that's a very dangerous place for us to be. So little bit of a different kind of podcast today. Uh, we kind of, you know, just threw out the scripts and just let it go. Uh, we'd love to hear what you think. We always welcome your feedback. You can reach me, Eric, at ChinaAfricaProject.com. You can reach Cobus at ChinaAfricaProject.com. And also Cliff on our team, uh, C-L-I-F-F, Cliff at uh, ChinaAfricaProject.com. He's our Africa editor. He wrote today his first uh, column in our newsletter. So if you are a subscriber, you got his insights on the Kenyan SGR fiasco right now where loans are being forced to be repaid and the Kenyan railways and the Kenyan government is in a real bind to repay the China Exim Bank for those loans. Cliff's insights were front and center in our newsletter today and are up on our website. That's only available to subscribers. We are providing this in-depth look at what the Chinese are doing, not just in Africa now, but increasingly throughout the global south if you'd like to follow what we're doing, we'd love to have you part of our growing community of readers. Just go to ChinaAfricaProject.com slash subscribe. $75 a year for students and teachers and $149 for everyone else. It's a bargain, just a bargain. So uh, we hope that you'll, you'll check it out. Any questions? Drop me an email. I'd love to have a chat with you. So that'll do it for this edition of the show. Cobus and I will be back again next week with another episode. Until then, thank you so much for listening. The discussion continues online. Head over to facebook.com slash China Africa Project to share your thoughts on today's show. Or follow the guys on Twitter. Eric's at Iolanda. And you can find Cobus at Stadenesk. For more information about the China Africa Project and to sign up for our free weekly email news brief, go to ChinaAfricaProject.com.